Welcome to part two of the February 2023 HMP Market Access Insights podcast on value-based cancer care among private payers. Thanks for listening. In this part, you'll hear Lee Blancett and me, Chris Van Denberg, discuss how prevalent value-based care is in primary and cancer care, private payer value-based care activity, and specifically in oncology, and ideas about how biopharmaceutical manufacturers might adjust to shifting customer interests because of value-based care. If you haven't already listened to part one, where we dig into traditional provider priorities, how value-based care attempts to adjust those priorities, and who some of the largest VBC players are in primary and cancer care, we encourage you to access that episode too. Otherwise, here's part two. Yeah, so let's take a look then at the popularity of value-based care. Because we just talked about these big groups that are doing it, but let's, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. And... Consider what we see from HCP LAN and their assessment of how value-based care payments have been progressing over the years. And what we see is that about half of commercial lives are in a value-based care program of some kind, and therefore half are not. And that hasn't been shifting a whole lot over the past couple of years. It's been pretty consistent. Of those that are in some kind of value-based care program, the vast majority are in what I would call the low-risk side, the fee-for-service plus some upside incentives for performance um, or shared savings. When we look at Medicare Advantage, however, the picture changes, not drastically, but a little bit, in that uh, about 40% are only in fee-for-service, uh, you know, fee-for-service only programs. And then of those who are in some sort of value-based care program, about half are of the lower risk side and about half are at the higher risk side, including things like shared, um, shared risk and capitation. But if you look at the Medicare fee-for-service world, these are the government programs, the vast majority are in some kind of value-based care program. Very little are still in fee-for-service. However, even of those in the value-based care world on that Medicare fee-for-service side, the vast majority is in the lower risks kind of programs. Now, why is that? Uh, there's many reasons. You have to understand that a practice even only engaging in the lower risk programs are still incurring risk because there's a lot of practice transformation that has to happen. And there's also mindset changes and habit changes within the practice, uh, data system changes. So there's a lot of barriers to value-based care. Yeah, I think it's important to note that when we talk about value-based care and where you see some of the commercial plans saying the majority of our lives are in value-based care. Um, they're really talking about maybe some kind of a network or um, maybe they're contracting with an ACO instead of contracting with an IPA. But one way or another, it's very lightweight. And our research suggests that the doctors, by and large, don't see this as value-based care. Uh, you can make the argument that every Medicare patient in the country is in value-based care because of the MIPS program with uh, CMS. So it's... You need to watch the definitions here. Again, we, where we think the change is going to occur, where you see the energy and the incentives being high enough to force cultural change, investment in infrastructure, and alignment of outcome you know, priorities is really where the doctors are at downside risk. Um, there is no silver bullet there necessarily. We're not going to certainly see 20 or 30% reductions in uh, cost of therapy. I think OCM proved that pretty clearly. But it's certainly where you do see more of the alignment and the doctors do begin to begin thinking about 
you know, whether or not they should be using product A versus product B. Uh, perhaps they're going to agree that their, their group is going to have an EMR that displays just a pathway, uh, set of pathway selections, and the doctor will then agree to select from the pathway selections. Those are where you start to see that, uh, I think, changes start to shift, and that's where, for our clients, you know, change is actually concerning and something you want to track because that's where you will see product selections being made based upon an input from another organization that's driving under the banner of value-based care. You know, we talked with a doctor who was working with Oncology Institute in mid-2022, and he was practicing in a Florida location. The doctor absolutely knew that what he was seeing in his EMR when it came time to select a treatment for a patient was not the entire set of options that are out there in the marketplace. It was much, much smaller than NCCN. However, the doctor was perfectly content with the selections he saw. He did not see anything missing that he thought was important in terms of clinical effectiveness. So he was more than happy to be restricted to a smaller list of options. Um, and that's the kind of culture change you see with value-based care, for better or worse. Um, you do see basically the doctors giving up some of their freedom and autonomy you know, in return for an economic benefit or an alignment, I guess you could say, with the payer's uh, preferred outcome of cost. Yeah, and related to that, and something that we discuss quite a bit, is there is the world where you provide a better therapy or better treatment, and it costs a lot more. And that, those are important, but it's called innovation and advancement. However, for value-based care, we're really talking about improvement of care and reduction of cost. And that's the, the VBC Valhalla, if you will. Yeah, I think VBC Valhalla is uh, right now beginning to appear, honestly. Um, I'm typically a little bit cynical or um, take a wait and see approach. But I think that at this point, certainly when we talk with some of the providers, again, at Oncology Institute, a few of the providers that were in oncology care model groups that did well, you're seeing the group making money by holding financial risk. And the doctors are you know, quite content with their outcomes. In fact, when you look at the data from oncology care model, what you see is, in fact, the, the rate of adoption of novel therapies was slightly higher in the OCM groups than it was in the community benchmark groups, the non-OCM groups. So the doctors are doing the right thing. They know they're practicing what they believe to be high-quality medicine, but total cost of care and the financial incentives are starting to enter into their thinking processes, and they're starting now to drive treatment selection. So I think that's sort of the VBC Valhalla. And we probably did see, you know, for at least some of the groups, we probably did see that emerge um, in the oncology care model. Right. So I think we've covered off on the provider side quite a bit here and what the point is. Now let's take a look at what payers, private payers specifically, are thinking about value-based care and specifically within oncology. Based on our own research, our own surveys, and uh, information we found from groups like COA, generally speaking, private payers not hopping on the value-based care bandwagon in oncology to any big degree. The regional payers uh, seem to have a little bit more interest um, for reasons that perhaps like because they have more local market share, um, they have closer relationships with local oncology practices, um, they tend to hold more financial risk. They have more members that are from fully insured employers versus self-insured employers. So those might be some of the reasons why we're seeing regionals pick up 
uh, value-based care. But that said, um, I don't want to overstate that it's a big uh, sweeping wave. In fact, if you look at some of the COA data from 2020, and I know they're going to be updating that soon, so we'll keep a lookout for that. In 2020, they, they identified only four national models, including the national payers that were in the, uh, the OCM. So outside of OCM, Aetna, Cigna, Humana had national models for value-based care. On the local blues or regional blue side, there were 12, uh, employer-based four. Um, so you can get a, a better idea of what really is happening out there from those kinds of numbers. Yeah, I think actually United had an um, oncology medical home program underway a couple years ago also, though it was a very, very small number of groups. Um, what we have seen is some experimentation with some of the private payers. You know, we also saw a case rate with MD Anderson from United. Uh, Lee Newcomer, before he retired, was great for um, experimenting with different approaches. Maybe a little bit less enthusiasm out there now that they're actually getting into you know, owning and managing oncology providers from United. But certainly the we are not seeing in our discussions with payers, when we're talking to them on the phone one-on-one -on -one, or talking with them privately at a conference, we're not seeing an overwhelming enthusiasm for sharing financial risk uh, and really trying to drive the, the doctors to think economically. By and large, when you're talking with rank-and-file medical directors or you're talking with rank-and-file medical managers from any of the management outfits, what you hear is a much more modest set of goals. They want the doctors to think about cost. They want the doctors to be sort of good stewards. Stewardship is something I hear more actually than anything else in our discussions with the payers. They want the doctors to be good stewards of the, the budget. So they're not spending unnecessarily, but the payers aren't necessarily interested in trying to put the doctors at risk and put them in a position where they're going to be cutting costs below the acceptable quality threshold. So I think the, the payers, at least in our original primary research and our discussions with them, um, are a little bit less enthusiastic than you might read in the press. That said, uh, we do know this is certainly a topic which is being discussed and with the primary care groups, we know that there is more value-based care risk going on out there. Uh, we're just not yet seeing it move into oncology in a systematic way beyond some of the better known programs, uh, such as some of the pathway programs or things like oncology care model, obviously EOM coming up this year. For sure. And we also have to keep in mind that financial costs and improvement of care aren't the only reasons why payers eventually do some of these programs. Sometimes, honestly, we heard a case study where there's a lot of internal politics. Uh, administration needed to do something different and, and, and try something. So they did a value-based care program. Um, so there's other reasons to do them. I really like the quote that we heard from one of our national respondents saying, as a national plan, the media is always trying to make a big deal about everything that they do. So they really have to be careful about what they launch. And it's very difficult to walk something back like a value-based care program. So they're being very careful about what they get involved with. The, the one area in commercial plans and Medicare Advantage plans that we remain underinformed on is what's happening with ACOs. You know, we know if, if you look at the slide here, you know, obviously there are, we know there are a couple thousand probably ACO contracts across the country now. Um, lots of, you know, hundreds of ACOs, lots of contracts. Private insurance companies are negotiating and contracting with ACOs just like Medicare is. 
Um, so we know risk is starting to move in that direction a little bit, or at least contracting is. We know in Medicare, ACO reach, and in some of the other Medicare, in some of the Medicare Advantage programs, there's quite a bit of risk out there already, and it's sitting on the shoulders of the ACOs. What we don't really fully understand yet is how the ACOs are actually coping with oncology. We know that very few ACOs include oncologists on their roster. Um, In fact, we've found only one clear public case where there were a number of oncologists on there. I think it was a grand total in this one ACO in Florida of five oncologists, and they were all single doctor practices. They were not, um, they certainly were not Florida Cancer, you know, or any of the big names. Um, These were very small practices, and that was it. So the open question here is how the primary care-based and you know, high-volume specialty-based ACOs are going to cope with cancer care. Right now, we expect that it, cancer is a relatively small part of their total patient population. Uh, on the commercial side, on the Medicare side, we know it's a larger part of their population. Um, and one of our key topics for investigation this year is going to be trying to understand more about how those referrals do flow. Okay, so Lee, we've covered the big, big issues of value-based care and oncology. We're going to continue to monitor this this topic over this next year and, and, and onward. So um, we can expect to uncover more. In the meantime, what I'd like to do is just wrap up with some initial thoughts about what um, our subscribers, biotech, biopharmaceutical companies, might be able to do in the wake of value-based care. So first and foremost, uh, a lot of payers and providers will admit that they think that there's a limited role for biopharmaceutical companies at this point, um, and that from a market access marketing standpoint, and I can talk to this having sat in that seat uh, for several manufacturers in my career, an idea is to perhaps assess the alignment of the existing payer value proposition presentations and other communications that are being developed with the priorities of those provider-based value-based care programs including relative effectiveness and positioning and guidelines and pathways, things that should align with the objectives of a value-based care program. I know from firsthand knowledge that there are some payers that are interested in better understanding patient journeys as part of value-based care so they can understand where the treatment points are, where the milestones are, and the decisions are. And so I know that we used to develop patient journeys all the time, and those could be helpful for some payers. On the medical side, um, as best as you can, supply data that helps assess oncology care costs, uh, real-world product cost data. Um, Unfortunately, what happens in the value-based care world is the financial goals of these programs are assessed at a one-year time period. And a lot of the uh, cost-effectiveness data from the manufacturer side is more than one year. So just keep that in mind. Um, market research insights and other patient programs could be of interest. Um, as best you can, offer HEOR methodologies for assessing costs, including budget impact analysis with providers that are holding risk. From a pricing and contracting standpoint, not so. Again, we're not talking about value-based drug contracting here. We're talking about value-based care from the provider perspective. With that in mind, we don't see how any uh, drug rebate contracts are actually flowing through to the providers, what we call the provider value-based care tab. So if they choose drug A versus drug B, and A is more expensive, more cost goes on their tab if they choose drug A. 
but who knows if that can change in the future where drug rebates do flow through um, so it's less of a addition to that tab, if you will. From a payer account management team, I mean, this is 101 stuff. Know your accounts, know what kind of value-based care programs they are running, where they're doing it, if it's in, if it's in oncology. Um, could be important to understand what kind of clinical goals are baked into those value-based care programs because that can matter, that can impact what you uh, emphasize when you're talking to them. And then from a field sales standpoint, similar, um, understand your accounts as best you can. Uh, talk to the front office, understand if, they're, if they know if they're in a value-based care program, because that can be challenging. Well, often the staff of an office don't even know if they're in a value-based care program. Um, but do your homework, figure out what they're involved with, and then again, as best you can, shape your stories so that they reflect what is important to them under the value-based care context. So in a nutshell, uh, from our own data and elsewhere, we have seen that value-based care programs are and will continue to shape physician treatment choice. We'll discover more and more how that's true in oncology specifically. But um, Lee, at this point, I think that's what we have to summarize our 2022 report on value-based care. It's just a couple final comments here too. We talked about this when we were presenting the community report um, earlier in 2022 and again uh, when we were talking about the payer report. But what we really want to watch out for in value-based care is the situation begin to develop where, uh, particularly given everything that's happening with Medicare drug price negotiations, we want to be very thoughtful about the situation emerging where a provider decision maker is going to find a lower whack to be more attractive to them in terms of you know, having impact on their total cost of care than a high rebate. You know, traditionally, particularly in community work, you know, the rebate has been the driver of practice economics. Under value-based care, once you start going into oncology care model type scenarios, you know, or you go into some of the other risk entities, frankly, the rebate loses its importance because remember, the payer is going to charge the provider the full rate, the full whack for the drug. Um, so any drug used is going to be charged at full list price. Whatever the payer gets in terms of rebate, whatever the group gets in terms of rebate, doesn't figure out against that. And so at the end of the day, um, everything you give a payer stays with a payer, does not go through to the community group. So at that point, you may want to consider new pricing strategies going forward, particularly, again, given the Medicare drug payment changes. You may want to start considering scenarios in which a lower whack is actually uh, replacing a, a high rebate strategy. So rebating your way to success with the community groups, which has been a very well-trodden and successful path for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, may be going by the wayside over the next 10 years as we move into more of this provider risk. And then finally, um, you do want to keep in mind also as these experiments spread that the primary care groups such as Oak Street and Agilon-sponsored ACOs are referring cancer patients to oncologists. Uh, as the groups grow in their prevalence, the number of lives they're managing grows, it's going to start to have a measurable impact upon brand volume. And at that point, you, in preparation for that point, you want to be thinking about tracking down what the referral patterns really are coming out of the ACOs. We'll be able to guide you by the end of this year with some general information around who's doing what and how. But at the end of the day, what you may see is your your importance of clients may shift 
substantially away from, say, Florida cancer in some communities in Florida, where Florida cancer may be important, but may not have any more Humana business as they don't right now, um, and instead is being replaced by a couple of small practices who have cut very good deals with the local ACOs. So you may also see your customer importance shift somewhat in these markets that are you know, high ACO, um, high risk uh, payer mix. I want to thank everybody for listening to our podcast and we're looking forward to a very interesting, exciting 2023 coming up as we delve further into changes in market access for oncology in the U.S. Please feel free to reach out with any comments, suggestions, or questions. Uh, We are always very happy to engage with our sponsors.